So we've been in the Gospel of Luke this summer, for those that haven't been able to be with us, looking at different stories where people meet Jesus, or a group of people meet Jesus, kind of looking at how their lives are changed by that encounter. And so I want to invite you, if you haven't been able to be here, uh, all those sermons that I or Silas or other location pastors preach are up on the website. I invite you to go back to those if you haven't had a chance to hear some of those. I think they've been really helpful. This morning we're in Luke 19. Uh, as you guys just heard, Zacchaeus, one of these really well-known, kind of well-worn stories. I think all of us heard that song at one point in our Sunday school, Zacchaeus is a wee little man, wee little man is he. So hopefully hear something new this morning. Um, but let's take a moment to pray and then we'll dive in. God, thanks for the opportunity we have to open your word. And for many of us, this word is very familiar. We, we have an idea of what we think it means. So we ask you to surprise us this morning. Would your spirit, um, which is alive and active, uh, as Hebrews tells us, would your spirit um, open our hearts to new revelation uh, as you shape us to be a people um, in your image that are sent out from this place after we're done this morning to to kind of um, bear your image to the world around us in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. Would you continue to shape us to be a people of great hope? I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so to kind of frame this conversation this morning, a few years ago, I don't remember exactly the year, I think 2010 or something like that, I came across this book in an airport, uh, Switch. How many of you guys have read Switch? It's by Chip and Dan Heath. It's the subtitle is How to Change Things When Change is Hard. It's one of those kind of business leadership books you find in airport bookstores, and you can read on the airplane, and you're done. But there's good stuff in it. And in the first chapter, um, it's a really interesting chapter. It's three surprises about change. And so they they list these three surprises. And the first one really has stood out to me over the years. It's often, as I work with, we work with situations that need to change, or I need to change, or maybe the church needs to change. This first one's really helped me, and here's what it is. They say that what looks like a people problem is more often a situation problem. Um, so what looks like a people problem is often a situation problem. And to, to kind of set that surprise up, they make this observation, or they illustrate it with this study conducted by this guy named Brian Wansink, not Wasink, Wansink, um, who's the director, at least at the time of the writing of the book, of the Food and Brand Lab at Cornell University in New York. And so in the study, Wansink and his colleagues um, took an unsuspecting group of moviegoers back in the year 2000, um, they, they, like a matinee, they gave them a free soft drink and a free bucket of popcorn, and then they asked them to stick around after the movie. I think the movie was Payback by Mel Gibson, so like an awful movie, and they asked him to stick around and just answer a few questions about their concession stand, okay? And so the twist was that the popcorn they were offered was, was popped five days earlier. So it was just so stale that you could eat a bucket of packing peanuts and it would have been better. There's no butter on it, no salt. It was awful, but it was free. And so some of the moviegoers are given a medium-sized bucket, which how many have ever, ever tried to eat a medium-sized bucket of popcorn in the theater? You just feel guilty afterwards, right? And then some were given the extra-large version. How many has, have you ever, some of you have done this? Yeah, there's a couple that are willing to admit they've eaten the extra-large version. The key is that every person got such a large bucket, whether it's medium, which is also just an ungodly amount of popcorn, or the extra-large version, that they, could never, they didn't need to share it, and they would never be able to finish it during this movie. And so Wansink and his colleagues were interested in just one question. Who would eat more popcorn, the extra large or the medium crowd? Would, they, would the people with the bigger buckets eat more than the people with the medium-sized buckets? And guess what? They did. People with the large, extra large buckets ate 53% more popcorn than those with the medium buckets. That's, they, they calculated 21 extra handfuls during a two-hour movie. 
And just to make sure it wasn't a fluke, like this wasn't a case of I hate Mel Gibson's movies, so I'm just, gonna, I'm just depressed, I'm just eating popcorn. Um, they went around the country and did this with all kinds of different movies, different times of day, same results. Extra large popcorn bucket, more than medium size. And thus they concluded, if you, wanna, if you want people to eat less popcorn or eat less of anything, eat less ice cream, don't buy the big gallon of it, buy the pint. You'll eat less. Uh, if you buy a big gallon of it, you, I, I'm case study here, I will eat the whole gallon. That's like my gateway drug right there, ice cream. So give people a smaller container and they'll eat less of whatever it is. Or as Chip and Dan Heath say, what looks like a people problem, these people are not gluttons. What looks like a people problem is really a situation problem. Are you with me? So what's the connection with Zacchaeus? Well, talk about a, a, a people problem. Uh, we're told at the very beginning of this story that he was the chief tax collector. He is a people problem in the Roman, Roman world. In the Roman colonies, tax collectors were the most despised people on planet Earth because they would charge these exorbitant amounts of money, uh, not like our tax collectors today, but they would way over the imperial, imperial tax. They would charge double, triple times. They'd pay the Roman government uh, some of the, the, what they were asking, they were even dis- more despised because the ro- they were backed by the Roman military. So if you've ever watched like a Monty Python movie, right? The Roman the gu- guards are with them, right? And so they're, they're going to houses, taking tax. They've got these military guards, and then they pay the military off. They were basically collaborators and extortionists. Bad, bad men. And yet, Jesus did not see it that way. Isn't this interesting? To, Zac- to Jesus, Zacchaeus, his life was not beyond the pale. He was somebody who, who was not irredeemable. Uh, instead, what we learn from Zacchaeus' story is that salvation, real-life changing encounter with Jesus, is available to anyone in the room. <laughs> like, if you're religious or irreligious, if, you're, if you are a sinner or a saint, if you've considered yourself kind of a bad person or a pretty good person, all that needs to happen is simply a change in your circumstance, is what Jesus would say. So life in Christ is rooted in this recognition that what you're facing is not a people problem. You're not the problem. You're facing a situation problem. Uh, none of us are beyond the pale, is what the gospel tells us. All of us, all of us can experience a full and rich life in Christ. As Martin Luther once said, who's this reformer, all of life is repentance. That's the first of his 99 theses. A saying we often misconstrue because our view of repentance is guilt-based. We feel sorry for bad things we've done, so we try and do good things. We come to church. We're laden with guilt. We put money in the plate. We hope we volunteer we, just to feel better. Is this anybody? Instead, what repentance is, that's not repentance. That's something else. Repentance, the biblical concept of repentance, as you hear this declared throughout the New Testament, is literally to change direction, to change your mindset. It's to make a 180-degree turn and head down a new path, new direction. Repentance is, the rec- is to recognize that what you're facing is not a people problem. You're not the problem. <laughs> it, you're, you're just headed the wrong direction. You're eating out of a too big of a popcorn bucket. You know, get a smaller bucket. Change your mindset. And, and thus, it's time to change, Jesus says, repent, and, and head in dir- the new direction with me, okay? And importantly, this change is, is from a life that's self-centered with Christ, or uh, not with Christ, self-centered, selfish, toward a life that's God-centered, Christ-centered, other-centered. Uh, as Luther said, that's constitutive of the entire Christian life. Like, all of life is repentance. That's your whole Christian life. So you don't like the word, I'm sorry, that's what it means to follow Christ, is to change, to repent. Now again, what does all that have to do with Zacchaeus? Well, what I love about Zacchaeus' story, and what's so great about him as a character that we're going to study, 
is that we get to see how change looks in just a few verses. In particular, in Luke 19, in those first 10 verses, we see a few different changes that uh, Zacchaeus makes in his life, real situational changes uh, that lead to a full life in Christ. Salvation is offered to him in just 10 verses, okay? And so here are the changes. They're listed in your bulletin, three things Zacchaeus does. Uh, The first change is he, he climbed a tree. The second change is he got over the crowd. And the third change is he took Jesus home with him. Three things that he just had to change, kind of adapt about how he's approaching his day. Because I don't think he walked into that day thinking, I'm going to climb a tree today, and I'll tell you why in a minute. So three changes. And then what those teach us a little bit about how we follow Christ. So first, he climbed a tree. The summary of which is this. (laughs) The first and biggest barrier, this is for you, between our hearts and then receiving and experiencing the transformation that God wants for us is your pride. It's your pride. Uh, Zacchaeus got up in the tree, and when he did, uh, he left his pride, his dignity behind. And here's why. All commentators, when you read about Zacchaeus, uh, said that when he climbed up in that tree, uh, that in that culture, which is a very traditional uh, kind of formal culture, he paid this enormous price socially. He, he climbed a tree. Uh, climbing a tree was something that children did. I mean, even today, my son likes to climb the tree outside our house. I rarely do it because it's child's play. Adults, specifically in that culture, adult men, could not, would never climb a tree. You just didn't do it. This is why in the story of the prodigal son, later in Luke, Luke 15, when you see the father running down the road to the the, the younger brother, remember this? That's such a shameful thing to do. Men didn't run. Men didn't climb trees. And here in Luke 10, or Luke 19, Zacchaeus is running and climbing a tree. Just bringing enormous shame on himself. Even in our informal culture, like we're pretty informal. I'm wearing t- uh, tennis shoes and jeans. In, in, if a public official, not me, maybe like our, our mayor or the head of a major corporation like Amazon or the head of a big bank, were to go to like the torchlight parade and then decide to climb into a tree to watch it, or even better, go to the, the Fremont Solstice Parade. <laughs> Here's a better one for you. And then decide impulsively to maybe get on a line bike and then ride the bike in the parade if you get my drift. <laughs> you know what's going to happen. Front page Seattle Times News, pictures, everybody's going to laugh. That person's going to lose respect. They might even lose their job, right? Like, if I'm going to do that, you're probably fine in any church, right? So, and that's essentially what happens to Zacchaeus, which begs this question, why? Like, why did he do that? Like, why? There are other ways to encounter Jesus. For example, uh, remember Nicodemus in John 3. He goes to Jesus at night. Very respectable religious guy. Joseph of Arimathea, we're also told in John's gospel that he provides this burial place for Jesus. And yet, it says in John's gospel, he's a secret disciple of Jesus. There's ways to follow Jesus uh, that didn't require such exposure and risk. And, and yet, Zacchaeus risks exposure. He takes this enormous risk, climbs up in a tree, a very large tree, by the way, uh, in broad daylight. And in doing so, he pays an enormous price. The price of ridicule, shame, despite his, his adult male status. He's, I mean, he's wealthy, and though he's despised, he's a ruler, as the New Testament says, in the city. What he, did, what he does is, is utterly foolish. Like, you just don't do that. And that's the way it, will, it still is, or will always be, actually. It takes different forms and different cultures and different centuries. But you can't have Jesus flowing through your life, friends, unless you're willing to get up in a tree, unless you're willing to look a little silly in front of, many, many other people. 
You have to like swallow your pride. Be willing to stand on your dignity, your reputation, your status, whatever it is. You have to be a little foolish, a little foolish to follow Jesus. And here's why. Um, I was joking with Kurt, who read our scripture, that it wouldn't be a Bethany sermon unless there was a little Wendell Berry, who's a poet. And he has this poem uh, in this book that Elizabeth and I got for our wedding uh, some years ago now. Uh, the book's called A Timbered Choir, and it's just a, bu- it's just a bunch of poems that he wrote. And this one happens to be one of my favorites. It's called The Old Man Climbs a Tree. Okay? So listen to this. This is why I think, I think Wendell is seeing into Zacchaeus' life a little bit. He's not writing this about Zacchaeus, but imagine he is. Uh, he had a tall cedar he wanted to cut for posts, but it leaned backward toward the fence, and there's no gain in tearing down one fence to build another. By the way, I'm building a fence this week. <laughs> this is resonating with me. Uh, if anybody wants to help, just talk to me after the service. I'm not kidding, actually. Uh, so, so to preserve the fence already built, he needed to fasten a rope high up in the cedar and draw it tight to the trunk of another tree so that as he saw the cedar free of its stance, it would sway away from the fence as it fell. To bring a ladder would require too long a carry up through the woods. Besides, you can't climb into a cedar by means of a ladder. It's too bristly. And so he thought he'd need to climb the tree. He'd climbed many trees many times in play when he was a boy and many times since, and he, when he had reason, and he loved his reasons for climbing the trees. And thus, trailing his rope untied as yet to anything but himself, he climbed up once again and stood where only birds and wind had been before and knew it was another world, after all, that he climbed up into. The treetops are another world, smelling of bark, a stratum of freer air, and larger views from which he saw the world in which he lived. And all day until now, its intimate geography changed by his absence and by the height he saw it from. Now listen to this part. The sky was a little larger, and all around the aerial topography of treetops, green and gray, the ground almost invisible beneath, he perched there, ungravitated as a bird, nodding his rope, looking about, worlded in worlds on worlds, pleased and unafraid. There are no other worlds but other worlds, and all the other worlds are here, reached or almost reachable by the same outstretching hand as he perched upon his high branch, almost imagining flight. Isn't that beautiful? I love that line, worlded in worlds upon worlds. Um, and that's kind of a glimpse into Zacchaeus' world, I think. And if that doesn't inspire you to go climb a tree this, today, I don't know what will. It's, there are other worlds out there. And this, this old man in, in, poem, in Wendell Berry's poem realizes that. There's other worlds to see. And, and Zacchaeus gets that glimpse of Jesus, a man from another world, in that sycamore tree. And that's why he climbs that tree. And that's the challenge you're being confronted with this morning. Will you be a little foolish? Climb a tree. Uh, so you can see Jesus. That's why fantasy stories are so intriguing to our children. You know, books like Harry Potter and Chronicles of Narnia and Lord of the Rings, because these books and other books represent other worlds where people fly, people live forever, people rule, they reign. They, and and the, those other worlds are reachable, but you have to be kind of foolish. You have to climb into a tree. You have to step into a wardrobe. You have to walk through a brick wall in a train station. You, you, ha- you can be a part of all of that, and that's so exciting but here's the deal. In our society, we say to our kids and to ourselves at some point, it's time to grow up. It's time to put those things away. It's time to sell your books at the next garage sale because there's no th- such thing as supernatural. Uh, this world's all there is. You're going to die. You're going to turn to dust. It's over, right? You're just a random product of natural selection, survival of the fittest. When you die, you're going to rot. That's what we say. 
So we teach ourselves. There's no supernatural good, no supernatural evil, because good and evil are just social constructs, right? We just came up with those ideas. And, and they're just relative, and nobody really knows who's to say what's good, right? That's, to, that's so Seattle, isn't it? And in our society, if you still believe in God in that way, and the devil and demons and angels, like if you come to church like this, you're kind of intellectually naive, and you're a little bit of a fool, right? I don't know how many of you feel like that at work, but that, that's the world we live in. We look down upon belief in the supernatural. We sneer at those who live by faith. In other, world, in other words, in our society, if you want to be a Christian and if you want to believe in God, like the Lord of the universe, Jesus, broke into another world, walked this planet, died, rose, reigns today, has power over evil and death. Like, that, that's real stuff, we say. If you want to believe in that, intellectually, you're inferior. And, and you're a fool. And you're, not, you're just considered a little less enlightened than everybody else. You haven't figured out what it really means to be human. <laughs> You've climbed into a tree. You know, you're just involved in child's place. You're being silly. So what? <laughs> good, thanks for the good news, Jack. I'm looking forward to going to work tomorrow so I can continue to play that character. Um, so what, what can I do if I believe in God, the claims of the Bible? Like, how can I live out my faith better? Well, here's a couple things I want to offer you before we move on. The first thing you can do, I don't think I'd say this to my friends at work, but is you can say that first Jesus himself said to me, you have to be like a child. Jesus said it, I do it. He said, have faith like a child. That's the primary reason, like I said earlier, we welcome children into our worship gatherings. Uh, why Anders is recognized as a member of our congregation now. Uh, he's not a secondary class citizen here. He is a member of Bethany Community Church. It's a way for us to be reminded that Jesus calls us to be like them, to take the shape of a child. I mean, it's, it's also why we frequently uh, invite our children to come in for communion, because we want to be reminded that God is revealing himself to have their faith. We have something to learn from the young people in our midst. I mean, Jesus actually took a child once. He sat that child down and said to the adults gathered around, remember this, unless you become like this child, you have no place in the kingdom of God. You don't belong there. And, and, and <laughs> that's pretty hard. That's a hard word. Unless you approach God, God, as if you need a Savior, you need help. That's a child's, you need parents. You need to approach God as Abba. Here's how you pray, Abba, Father, Daddy. You cannot enter God's kingdom. You don't understand what it means to follow God yet. Don't grow up. You need to have the faith of a child. Don't lose your dignity. Uh, I mean, lose your dignity. Get rid of all that. Climb into a tree. That's one thing you can say. Here's the other thing, which might be more, more helpful. There, there are a lot of people in our culture that have climbed up in that tree with us. One of my favorites is uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. When he, in his Nobel Peace Prize, God got the Nobel Peace Prize in his acceptance speech, he says this, I refuse to believe the idea that we are mere flotsam and jetsam in the river of life, unable to respond to the eternal oughtness that forever confronts us. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, I reject the idea that the world's all there is, that we're just evolved accidents and that good and evil are subjective concepts. I believe there's an eternal world with eternal justice and eternal goodness. 
And that's why we celebrate his birthday every year. And that's why we, we, we pursue his legacy of reconciliation and justice. Because we believe that God gave us those things. That God desires justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Those are not relative concepts in our minds. Those are things coming from heaven to earth. Another person up in the tree with us, and one of my favorites as well, is C.S. Lewis. He converts to Christianity later in life. He's a professor at Oxford. And he says this in one of his memoirs. As an adolescent, I would have been ashamed. Remember, he writes the Chronicles of Narnia. I would have been ashamed to be reading or writing fairy tales. <laughs> when you become a teenager, you're told you can't do that. Uh, you can't believe in witches and other worlds and that sort of thing. But then he says, uh, when I grew up, <laughs> now I'm 50, I read them in public. I write them to be consumed in public. And he said this, for when I became a man, I put away childish things, especially the fear of childishness. (laughs) You're afraid of being a child. Truly, that's what he's saying. There's nothing more childish than to feel like, I don't want to look childish. I don't want to look like a young person. Jesus says, become like a child. That's this, this is the main spiritual lesson that Zacchaeus teaches us. Become a little foolish. It's okay. (laughs) It's okay. He wants to fill your heart with childlike wonder the rest of your days, like that man in the tree. Uh, You don't have to give it up. You might lose a little bit of your uh, dignity, <laughs> but here's the deal. You won't become jaded. You won't, become, you won't be poisoned by cynicism. And skepticism and doubt, listen to this. My children are a little skeptical <laughs> of the things that I preach. And that's okay. Skepticism and doubt are things that can live with your faith. They can be integrated inside your faith. Uh, you can accept that there's things in the world you don't know. Children know this. There's things you don't know, and you don't have to know it all. It's okay. You don't have to know everything. That's a very childish thing to accept. And yet most of us in the room don't feel comfortable doing it. You'll be filled with overwhelming gratitude. There's so much that comes as a gift when you accept that you're a child. (laughs) And so that's the first thing. Are you willing to get up in the tree with Zacchaeus and others? That's going to lead to your transformation. Here's the second thing. In verses 3 and 7, Zacchaeus gets over the crowd, okay? So the next thing we're going to learn, and what I love about this story, uh, is that he's short, <laughs> but if you read, and it didn't kind of come across in the message, but in other translations, it will if you read this, uh, that's not the reason he's not able to see Jesus. So we sing the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, wee little man was he, right? And we say, well, it's because he's so short, he's stuck behind the crowd. But actually, if read the NIV sometime, that's the, the version I, I was reading in study, um, it says in verse 3, he was attempting to see who Jesus was, and on account of the crowd, he could not. It's not because he's short, he couldn't see. It's on account of the crowd. Yes, he's short, and that may have been a contributing factor, but really it's this crowd that is preventing Zacchaeus from having a clear view of Jesus. And what's more, we see this crowd. If you, if you look into the, the crowd a little bit, they are a nasty crowd. They're self-righteous. They're moralistic. Look at what they say to Zacchaeus, or actually at Jesus, but about Zacchaeus, you sinner. He's a sinner. Um, They don't use people first language about Zacchaeus at all. And here's what's helpful about that. Uh, The the number one thing that keeps us from experiencing God is pride, but here's the number two thing. The second biggest problem I think people have with the Christian faith is the the crowd. Moralistic, self-righteous, religious people. I'm sorry, (laughs) people have a hard time with us. There are so many people in the world like this that that use the word sinner in this sort of exclusive, abusive way. 
just beat people up with it. They look down on those who don't share their beliefs. Uh, there's, and there's so much evidence in the history of the church about this. Uh, as so many professing Christians, I'm not pointing fingers here, uh, but there are churches on the planet right now and maybe in our city that do this, that just say, well, those people are just sinners. Those people don't understand what it means to, to be human. Uh, they just can't get it. They're heathens. So much so that the people I talk to outside the church, many of my friends, refuse to call themselves Christians because they've had this very visceral experience with Christianity. Um, toxic. They, they say in one way or another, the same thing Gandhi said once, I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And so they can't get past the crowd, just like Zacchaeus. They, it's, and it's tragic and it's true. They, it just leaves us in this sort of bind as a gathered people. We come on Sunday, we're just trying to be faithful, and yet we're, we're labeled. We got a church sign out here, <laughs> You're, you're marked. Okay? You're walking out. You're marked. All of you are marked. And, and it's, it's hard to invite others into uh, a relationship with Christ because you're following Christ publicly. So how do you do that? I mean, how do you get past the crowd like Zacchaeus? Uh, look at what Zacchaeus did. Okay? This is for you and for those that maybe you're in a relationship with. He, find, he found a way to look at Jesus apart from the crowd. Notice this. Not only did he not let the crowd keep him from seeing Jesus— but he didn't try and see Jesus through the crowd. You know, he's not like back there going, hey, can you just move out of the way so I can see Jesus? He runs ahead, gets in the tree, and finds a completely different vantage point from which to see Jesus. He, he says this, I'm going to find a way to see who this Jesus guy really is. I'm not going to be affected by the inconsistencies of these people who say they're his followers, those who are just interested in getting a, a healing touch, just crowding around him. I'm not going to let them block my view. I'm going to find a different vantage point to see this guy. We're going to get a firsthand clear view of this guy. And I'm going to do, I'm going to go to Jesus personally just to see who Jesus really is. Uh, it's, and it's simple, and it's kind of sad I need to even say this on Sunday, but we need to be reminded of this, that the gospel is about and revealed by Jesus. Jesus plus nothing. That's the equation. Jesus plus nothing. And I know that's a simple thing to say in church, but we need to remember that the gospel isn't about us. It's not about me. It's not about Bethany. It's not about how good I preach or how bad I preach. It's not how orthodox your theology is. It's not how sound our worship even is. I mean, that's all good and important to the health of our church, but that's not the point. The bottom line is Jesus, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, how he lived, why he died, and thus we have to go to Jesus every day and many moments throughout the day Right to the source. This is why we've been in the Gospel of Luke all summer. Look at those stories and examine who he is. Discover how God's revealed through this man. And, and by the way, we have to do this with other people. Uh, that's why we gather on Sundays and why we invite you to be part of groups beyond Sunday. People who are committed first and foremost to the discipline of telling and retelling the story of God who aren't using church as sort of a, a way to get on a social platform, who aren't just in it for the fellowship. That's good too. But who are saying, I'm curious enough to go back to these four Gospels and just read these stories over and over and over and over until I know this guy in regular study, in mutual submission. It's so vital to our transformation. That's what Zacchaeus does. He goes right to Jesus. And here's the deal. When you do, if you'll do that, if you'll commit yourself to a group of people um, that read the scriptures together and, and, and the story of God, immerse yourself in God's story, uh, here's what you're going to find. On nearly every page of the, the Bible, certainly on every page of the Gospels, you're going to find this contrast between the religious 
insiders and the irreligious outsiders on nearly every page. You'll find it here in Luke 19. You have this religious group and a very irreligious man. You find it in Luke 7. Jesus affirms the faith of a, a so-called sinful woman. Remember this story? And then denounces the faith of a Pharisee who'd invited him into his home. Uh, you find it in Luke 10. Jesus affirms the faith of a Samaritan who's a religious ethnic outsider in that day. And yet criticizes the faith of a pair of priests who are going to the temple, going to church. <laughs> in Luke 15, he affirms the faith of a prodigal a brother while laying into the cynicism of this elder sort of religious good boy. Every place, go through the Gospels, you're going to see this Jesus who affirms the outsider, uh, whether it's a sexual outsider, a moral outsider, an ethnic outsider, a religious outsider. And in nearly every circumstance, you see him with the insider and he's saying, woe to you. I mean, look at Luke. We have the Beatitudes. We love the Beatitudes. They bless us right after the Beatitudes. Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. <laughs> That's hard to hear. And we, we, like, we don't want to read that stuff because it just goes right to our heart. But the reason is, is because Jesus is committed. He's not shaming you with that stuff. He's committed to exposing the false way of religion and the true way of the gospel. So he understands that uh, it doesn't matter what you've done, like I said earlier. It doesn't matter what you failed to do. It, it, it doesn't even matter who you are. Like, faith, the gospel, is not about doing and not doing. It's not a matter of pedigree. Like, if you were raised as a Christian or not, uh, that's religion. That's working your way toward God. Here's the gospel. The gospel is about God, what God's done, uh, the implications of God's acts, uh, his grace for our lives and for the world. That's the gospel. And so the key is, is it's the outsiders, if you read the gospels, the stories of Jesus, who are much faster to understand that than the religious insiders, the crowds. The crowds say stuff like this, I'm pretty good. I've been pretty good. I got this down. Grace is a nice idea, cool concept. I don't really need a Savior right now because things are going good. I'll let you know, Jesus. I'll give you a call. You know, and the warning for us here is, I suppose, is there's a little bit of that crowd in every one of us. There's a little bit of the crowd in every church to some degree. A bit of the religious insider, the, the elder brother, the, the, the Pharisee, the pride, the self-righteousness, a tendency to say, I'm good, and thus to look down at those who are not so good the people outside the church. And the challenge thus for us, listen to this, is we have to get over the crowd. We have to get over the crowd. Uh, both the crowd that's around us. I mean, there is a crowd around us all the time, Christian culture, I'll say, that's obscuring a clear view of Jesus. We need to get past the politics. We need to get past sort of the, the ways in which the church and the culture around us is interpreting the Gospels and look at Jesus, get a clear view of Jesus who he is, what he did, what he said, and let that shape our lives. And when you do that, it's going to be a radical transformation. We have to get over the crowd around us. We also have to get over the crowd within us. There's a little bit of the crowd in every one of us, and I'm with you. One that says, I'm good. I don't need grace. I got this right now. Life's good. I'm good. We got to get over that crowd. We're not good. <laughs> there, we absolutely need God's grace at every moment of every day, not just sometimes, not just when things are down, at every moment of every day, oldest and youngest, lifelong Christian, newborn Christian, every person in here needs to receive God's grace every day. It's not just a, a, a supplement <laughs> that you just take once in a while so you feel better. Grace is everything. It changes everything. And so we have to find a way, as, as Zacchaeus did, 
to experience God's grace, grasp God's grace, be grasped by it, by getting up in the tree and then looking past that crowd, okay? So here's the third change. This, it, that leads to this last change, and then we'll invite uh, our worship team up to help us respond. Here's the third change. Zacchaeus took Jesus home. So in verses 5 to 6, kind of the middle of this passage, um, notice Jesus did not say to Zacchaeus, hey, believe in me, Zacchaeus, and I'll go home with you. He didn't say, accept me into your heart, <laughs> profess I'm Lord and Savior, ask forgiveness, and I'll be your guest. He didn't say, obey me with all your life, read, my bi- read your Bible, and then we'll have dinner together. No, he says, he looks up at Zacchaeus in the tree, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. He demands a hearing at Jesus. He wants to go to his, Jesus wants to go to his house and have dinner. And when Jesus says that, I must stay at your house, that teaches us something very vital about how transformation looks in our lives, which is this. It shows us the depth and the length and the breadth to which God's committed to going in order to save us. Because uh, you see, in those days, to go home with somebody, to eat in their home, meant something very, very important. It's very different than our day. In those days, specifically this meal, this is going to be an evening meal, okay? They're going to go home and have dinner together. It's what's, it's what's called in, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, the Hebrew culture, the long evening meal, okay? And because there's no electric lights, um, so nothing, if you've ever been, I lived in Kenya for a year, and, and where I lived, there was no electricity. So you, you sit around with these torches without electricity, and really nothing's happening after that moment. You're just inside, you know? And you, so you lit you're the torches, you're there all evening, and then you go to bed. And it was the, in, in that way, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, it's the heart of the family life, that meal. Everybody's there, all the kids are there, all the aunts and uncles are there. And it's where these deep personal conversations will happen, where uh, life is shared. And therefore, to invite an outsider, a guest like Jesus, into that space uh, was a very vulnerable and intimate thing to do. It's to invite them into the warp and the woof of your family. It's like to say, come and read a bedtime story with my son. Um, come and say your prayers with my daughter. Every, every night we do this. Why don't you pray with her, Jesus? Because <laughs> you're going to be there. Uh, here, there's our hopes for the coming day. Here's some of our, our fears. Um, you're going to invite <laughs> in, you, Jesus into your squabbles and your tantrums. Our kids have squabbles and tantrums all the time. He's going to see that. You're going to invite him into the misunderstandings you have with your spouse. Those just happen. You don't plan those. Hey, let's have a fight. Um, maybe some of you do. But you're just going to invite him into it because he's going to be there. You're going to, he's going to see the spaghetti stains on your walls. This is not Martha Stewart living. This is like the family meal. This is just the stuff that happens. And, and the crowd, these very good religious people, they saw Jesus being willing to get that close to Zacchaeus and his family and become that intimate with him, that this deeply offended them. They're deeply offended by this whole act. And here's why. If Jesus enters Zacchaeus' house, just go with me here, and he sits on Zacchaeus' chair and sleeps in his guest bed and showers and shaves in his bathroom. By the way, did you notice I shaved? <laughs> I'm Jack. I'm the pastor, one of the pastors here. Um, eats at his table, reads a bedtime story with Zacchaeus' son or daughter. He emerges the next morning defiled. He's dirty. See, remember, Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, extortionists, collaborated with the Roman government, which means 
His household, this is the way it works in that economy, is a defiled household. He doesn't have a religious space he goes to and this gets clean. He isn't allowed to do that. He's a dirty man. <laughs> and so the belief was if you go into his house, you even set foot in his house and share food, sit on his couch, use his toilet, you're a defiled person too. You're a dirty person. That's the belief. And thus, here's the question for the astute religious person in that crowd. And the reason they're so angry. Is this the way the Messiah, this guy's saying he's the Messiah. Is this the way the Messiah is supposed to behave? Especially on the eve of Passover. This is right before Passover. Uh, he'll be making atonement for our sins. He can't do that. He associates with sinners. He can't make atonement. He's dirty. That, this doesn't work. He cannot do this. This is why they're so upset. And yet, ex- this is exactly the way God works and has always worked. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. God made him who had no sin, sin. Isn't that amazing? I love how Eugene Peterson puts that verse. Uh, if you read it in the message in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, he asks a question. How do we become friends with God? I think that's a great question. And he answers it this way. We become friends with God because God first befriended us in Christ. God took the first step, putting the wrong on him who never did wrong on, on him so that we could be put right with God. It's this great exchange. It's the way God works. That's just how God works. In other words, throughout this story and through this story, Jesus is saying to Zacchaeus, to us, I want to change everything in your life, and thus everything must change. The way you spend your money, the way you approach your work, your thought life, your sex life, your ethics, your view of the world, how you parent, your marriage. I want everything to change. (laughs) Everything is going to be changed by the gospel. Thus, I'm coming home with you. Do you get this? Uh, Jesus says, if you want salvation to come into your life, you can't just experience me at 9.30 on Sunday morning. It doesn't work that way. That will not change you. An hour or an hour and a half on Sunday morning will not change your life, maybe incrementally. But to really follow Jesus, you need to let him befriend you. Remember what Eugene Peterson says. Come into your day-to-day life, not just your church life, your home life, your family life, your sleeping and eating life. Every single nook and cranny of your life must be touched by God in order to be changed by God. Which, by the way, is exactly what happens to Zacchaeus and why I love this guy. <laughs> Look at verse 8 real quick, and then we'll finish. He stands up and says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody, and he has, I'll pay back four times the amount, 400 times the amount he'd taken from people he's given back. I mean, that's reparations. <laughs> There's, and this is nothing short of the total reshaping of Zacchaeus' life and his community. Think of that. The money he's taken from people, they're getting four times back. Uh, Zacchaeus, his story reminds us that the gospel touches the most intimate and deep places of our lives that affect our, our personal lives, but also our public lives, that, which includes the way in which we relate to people on the margins, um, those who have experienced injustice, those who've been exploited, those who have been taken advantage of by broken systems in our world, even, at the, even by us at times, as people who go to the church, are part of the church. Paul says in 2 Corinthians as well, we are Christ's ambassadors, and that he's called us into participation in this ministry of reconciliation, repairing, redeeming the world. And so Zacchaeus' story reminds us that we've been given this ministry, and that the gospel, as it reaches into every dimension of our lives, must reach beyond just our lives into the world. 
because the world is still broken. As the great Abraham Kuyper once put it, he said, there's not a square inch, not a square inch of the whole domain of the human existence in which we live, over which Christ, who's sovereign over all, does not declare mine. It's all mine. And I want to redeem it. And I will use you to do so. That's the whole gospel. And thus, when Jesus says to Zacchaeus, I must come home with you, he's saying, I want to impact and change your life. And I want to impact and change your community. And I want to impact and change your city. I want to change this world. And I'm going to use you. That's grace. Because this guy was unusable, according to the religious crowd. And yet, Jesus says, you're, you, you're useful. I've got a plan for you. That's the implication of Zacchaeus' story for my life, for every one of your lives. That God has something he wants to do with you. And he's invited you to climb a tree. <laughs> to just look past that crowd and then... Invite him home with you. Invite him into every aspect of your life. And he'll start to use you. He'll use you in your workplace, wherever you work. He'll use you in your community where you live. He will continue to use you every day of your life. May it be so. May God use us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, this, this guy who <laughs> we think we know, but we know that you must have known much better because you used him. And you continue to use him. Uh, Thank you that he will be useful in instructing us this week, uh, our conversations at our small groups and our families. Thank you that he'll be useful in challenging us, God. Um, And thank you most of all, Christ, that you uh, encountered him as you encounter us uh, in order to shape our lives, change our lives, change our city. So may it be so, God. Would you continue to shape us as we respond in worship? Pray in Christ's name. Amen.